This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, the theme is entering into Christ's passion, the Mass as a sacrifice. So if we're going to treat that, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Spirit they may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so the title is Entering into Christ's Passion, the Mass as a Sacrifice. And I want to start with two objections in classic uh, Thomistic form following Thomas Aquinas, our patron. He always starts with the objections. There's a lot of objections perhaps we could come up with, but here's two, two important ones. The first is an objection from a contemporary secular perspective. Isn't offering sacrifices uh, kind of, well, put it mildly, old-fashioned. I mean, isn't this a relic of some barbaric, primitive, religious outlook on the world? That some kind of divinity needs to be placated by, say, slaughtering animals or some kind of other death? How can you placate a divinity, if one exists, by killing something? And isn't that the essence of a sacrifice? Can this really be important for modern human beings? How can we actually believe in this? Okay, that's the first objection. Second objection, this is a Protestant objection because uh, the, the sacrifice of the Mass, or whether the Mass is a sacrifice, was a massive issue during the Protestant Reformation. So the Protestant objection goes like this. If if Catholics say that the Mass is a sacrifice, isn't it necessarily then the case that the Mass's sacrifice would have to be different from the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? It seems like it would have to be another sacrifice because that sacrifice has already happened and then we're saying these Masses all over the place every day this seems like it's not the sacrifice of Christ, but a sacrifice of human beings. Now, that's a very pointed question. I'm going to amplify this a little bit. That's a very pointed question put to the Catholic Church by the Protestant Reformers, and famously in the 16th century, first and foremost by, by Martin Luther, but also by Calvin, Zwingli, Cramner, and many others in the epoch of the Reformation. And their objection is based especially on a biblical text, a text from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 7. So the letter to the Hebrews says that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is unlike that of the many priests of the Old Covenant under the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, that's the first covenant made with the people of Israel. And Moses wrote down all of the ritual prescriptions, which you find in, uh, say, Exodus. You also find it in Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Very detailed descriptions of the ritual sacrifices that are supposed to be made. Above all, eventually in the temple in Jerusalem. These are principally animal sacrifices. Okay, so this involves the ritual slaughter and then the burning of an animal. And it's repeated, according to the Law of Moses, yearly, monthly, in some cases even daily, in front of the Holy of Holies uh, on the altar there in the Temple of Jerusalem. So the letter to the Hebrews makes reference to this system of animal sacrifices in the Temple. And there was a priesthood for that set of Temple sacrifices. So, the Levitical priesthood. This is the Old Testament priesthood. And the letter to the Hebrews says this was a priesthood that was to exist only for a certain time. And it had very imperfect sacrifices. Goats, bulls, lambs, things like that. 
these sacrifices did not have the power to purify from sins, and that's why they had to be constantly repeated day after day. But the argument goes of the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus is a priest according to a new covenant, and therefore with a new priesthood and a new sacrifice. Okay, so this is Hebrews 7, starting at verse 7. Let me just uh, read a few lines of scripture for you here. For it is witnessed of him, of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then it goes on, I'm jumping to verse 22. This makes Jesus the surety of a better covenant. The former priests, the Mosaic priests, or the Levitical priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him. And I'm skipping over something. And here we arrive at verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. So, uh, that's the letter to the Hebrews. Martin Luther and the other reformers argue that since the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was all-sufficient, once and for all, there's now no need to repeat that sacrifice, and certainly no need to offer any new sacrifices. And so they then went further and said, the Mass, which purports to be a sacrifice, is a human invention and in fact, therefore, a source of idolatry. Because considered as a human act, a human sacrifice aiming at the forgiveness of sins, it's a form of works righteousness. People are not saved or justified by a mechanical repetition of some ceremony, like the Mass, like the Eucharistic Rite. You're saved, you're justified by faith alone, apart from works. That's Luther's argument. So, according to Luther, if we believe in the Lord, we'll be saved. And this is not due to our own merits or our own actions or some ritual that we do. It's due to the grace of Christ alone. So here's a, a quote, and I actually tried to, to run this down, and I didn't have time to, uh, to go a little further, so I, I, I'm, I apologize, I don't have a citation. As far as I understand, this is an authentic quote from Luther, I believe from one of his letters, on the Mass, he was writing to another Protestant reformer, and he wrote, I fear that the Mass has brought into Christendom more idolatry than there ever was among the Jews. If we triumph over the Mass, then I think we will have triumphed completely over the Pope. So Luther really thought that this was a central issue to the Reformation. Okay, so I've tried to make the objection as strong as I can. And now the rest of our time is going to be trying to explain why it's right to think about the Mass as a sacrifice, and in fact why that's a, a centrally important thing for understanding what Jesus did for us and how he brings his salvation into our lives in this world, in our time. Okay, so our task is to talk about why the Mass is a sacrifice and how that is connected to the passion of Christ on the cross. And it brings with it an implication not only for what we understand to be happening at the Mass, but also what we do, what you do, when you go to Mass. So St. Thomas Aquinas has some very rich theological resources that overflow, you might say, when you study this issue into a kind of spirituality of the Eucharist. Okay, so my talk has four main points. The first point is, what is a sacrifice and why do we need it? And that's really a response to the secular objection. Isn't this outmoded? The second point is about the priesthood of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. So trying to really get at what was going on there. The third point then, and it's really the, the key point, is 
in view of these first two points, how is the Mass a sacrifice? And then finally, some concluding thoughts about a kind of spirituality that flows from this teaching about our participation in the Mass. Okay, so let's start with the first major point. And this is about what Aquinas calls the virtue of religion. Aquinas thinks that there is a need for human beings to offer sacrifices. And actually, this is a part of, a nat of the natural law itself. So let's take a look at the first text on your handout. It's on page one. It's from Aquinas's Summa, and it's from the second part of the second part. That's why it says 2-2 two, two there in Roman numerals. Question 85, Article 1. Whether offering, whether offering sacrifice to God is of the law of nature. And I've just given you a little excerpt from Aquinas' text here. Uh, but here's how his argument goes. You'll see if you, if you look through this text that there are really two points that Aquinas is making. The first has to do with the recognition which he thinks natural reason alone can arrive at that we are creatures subject to a higher being. That is, God exists, we are not God. So we exist somehow under God. It's a very basic point. So let's, let's look at uh, Aquinas' own text. Natural reason tells man that he is subject to a higher being on account of the defects which he perceives in himself and in which he needs help and direction from someone above him. And whatever this superior being may be, it is known to all under the name of God. Okay, so this is not a real thick idea of God here that Aquinas is working with. It's not, he's not even claiming to have like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of the Bible. He's just trying to use the most basic idea about God that human beings could have, and that is common in, you know, it's common throughout time and, and around the globe in many uh, cultures. That, that there is some being superior to us. We recognize that we are not the highest beings. Okay, so then Aquinas' argument unfolds uh, from there. So he goes on. Now, just as in natural things, the lower are naturally subject to the higher, so too it is a dictate of natural reason in accordance with man's natural inclination that he should tender submission and honor according to his mode to that which is above man. Okay, so if we recognize that we are less than a superior being, then we should do something to acknowledge that difference. So the virtue of religion, according to Aquinas, which he thinks is a, a natural, it's a, it's a part of the natural law, it's something that every human being, regardless of their, of their religion, should have. Everyone should have this virtue of religion starts from our recognition that God is the creator and a superior being to us, and we are creatures. Okay, a word about that. Because we tend to think that creation describes a moment in time, like way, way back at the beginning of the universe, there was this moment that we call creation, and then everything kind of unfolds from there. That is not Aquinas' idea of creation, interestingly. Aquinas thinks that creation is a relation. It's not a one-time event. It's an ongoing relation of radical dependence of things that are not God on God. That is, at every moment that anything at all exists is because God is sustaining it in being. And to be a creature means to be a being who does not stand on your own, but is held in being by something above. So the virtue of religion is ultimately based on that relation that we owe some recognition of that higher being in virtue of the fact that we are creatures. Now, it's important to notice that Aquinas does not think that there is anything that we can give to God 
when we worship him. Why do we worship him? This is the second text on your handout. Whether religion has an external act. And Aquinas starts that text by explaining, we pay God honor and reverence, not for his sake, because he is of himself full of glory, to which no creature can add anything, but for our own sake, because by the very fact that we revere and honor God, our mind is subjected to him, wherein its perfection consists, since the thing is perfected by being subjected to its superior. Okay, that's a very important principle. If you begin to think of yourself as a god, I mean, that may be attractive to you. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not to this crowd. But if you were to begin to think about yourself as a god, you would be disordering yourself from the truth and from the order of reality around you. And that would involve a defect, actually, in you. So illusions of grandeur don't actually make you, make you great. They, in a certain sense, make you kind of pathetic. And this is also true for us. If you want to be perfect, you have to recognize where you're really at, what the truth of your existence is. And that is that you are under God. So worship is not for the sake of God, who doesn't get anything from us. He's the source of everything that is. There's nothing that we have that could make God better off. And this is also one of those very deep kind of mind-bending truths that you can meditate on for a long time with, with profit, that God plus the world is not any greater than God. So creation actually doesn't add anything to God. He simply wants to have his goodness overflow to creatures who are not God so that they can have some share in what he has in plenitude. So, worship is for our sake. Sacrifice is for our sake. Now, in the second half of both of the texts that I've given you, these first two texts, Aquinas talks about how we should engage in that worship. And he says that we do it through visible and sensible things. Why is that? That's because we are spiritual animals. We have an animal nature, we have bodies, we have animal impulses, we know things through the senses, but we also have a rational soul, which is a spiritual soul, something that transcends just our body. And so we come to know the truth in our minds through what we perceive with our bodies, with our bodily senses. And we use external and sensible things to signify the spiritual acts that we make. So an act becomes more real when you make it, not only in the hidden recesses of your heart, but when you actually bring it out into the open. And probably most of the young women here would be able to acknowledge the truth of this on Valentine's Day, for example. Your secret admirer isn't uh, much good to you if he only hides his admiration for you in his heart and never does anything. On Valentine's Day, you actually want the rose, right? So that's, that's important for human relationships, that that be signified somehow, that the guy brings the young woman that he's in love with some visible sign of what he says is in his heart. And it matters to us. It makes it visible because we are embodied creatures. So, also for our worship of God. Our worship of God needs to become fully real for us as we use our bodies to do it. So, Aquinas thinks that there is a kind of natural law to the fact that we are supposed to use visible signs and external rituals as a part of our worship. And this is a strong contrast, I think, with what you find in some of uh, secular modernity, 
Also, with certain Gnostic forms of religion, you find it also as a point of contrast between, say, Christianity and Buddhism, and even a contrast between Catholicism and some forms of Protestantism, which can be very suspicious about ritual. So that depends on the Protestant group that you're talking to. So Aquinas especially identifies the interior value of a sacrifice with the interior spiritual act that a worshiper makes. And it is given flesh, as it were, by the exterior act of ritual worship. The interior act is precisely charity. So you see this in the reply to the second objection in the second text. The last line of that second text on your handout, Aquinas quotes St. Augustine, the visible sacrifice is the sacrament or sacred sign of the invisible sacrifice. And that invisible sacrifice is above all the act of love or the act of devotion, charity for God, loving God above all things. That is what God loves when we worship him. That's what pleases him. It's not the external act. And what is the act of charity? It is that our wills would be rightly ordered under God. So we are putting ourselves in right relationship to God when we make acts of sacrifice and worship with a spirit of charity, with a spirit of love. Okay, this brings us to my second major point, and that's about Christ's priesthood and his sacrifice on the cross. So for St. Thomas Aquinas, the central feature of the priesthood is mediation. A priest is a mediator, a mediator between man and God. And that idea is just taken straight out of uh, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, which describes Christ's priesthood as him being the mediator of the new and eternal covenant in his own blood. Okay, so actually this is a very important point, kind of a footnote, uh, but an important footnote about in theology, like what kind of method should you use? You don't start with other human priests and work your way up to Christ's priesthood. You'll never really get there. Christ's priesthood is first. It is above, and we understand all human priesthood, all other historical examples of priesthood, like if we are doing an anthropology class and looking at priesthood in different pagan cultures, because of course pagan cultures have priest, priestly uh, rituals and priestly roles. Um, the ancient Greeks had priests, the ancient Romans had priests, the ancient Jews had priests, so did the Egyptians and so forth. You find this all over the place. We don't look at those forms of priesthood and try to work our way up to Jesus. The proper theological method is to start by recognizing that Jesus is the highest example, and then these others are kind of analogous to him. So Christ is a priest. Okay, question, ask yourself this. I, I won't call on anybody. Is he a priest as God, as man, as God and man? Actually, Aquinas says Christ is a priest only as man, not as God. Why? Well, think about what we just said about the virtue of religion. What is religion? Religion is a creature acknowledging that God is above and paying some honor and reverence to God. And the priest is a mediator between God and man. So a priest needs to be a creature. And Jesus, as man, is a creature. Now, of course, that has to, we have to add a whole bunch of qualifications to that because Jesus is the eternal son. He is God in person. But he's God who has assumed a human nature to himself, so he is truly a man. And as man, he offers up prayers and supplications and the supreme sacrifice of his life on the cross for the salvation of souls. So, classically speaking, then, Jesus is the priest who offers the sacrifice of himself on the cross. He's the priest and the victim. So the, the soldiers at the crucifixion 
they placed a lance into the side of Jesus. But the act of killing Christ by the soldiers was an act of murder. It was not an act of worship. It was not an act of sacrifice. It was Christ who subjected himself to them and therefore subjected himself to death, surrendered to death. He didn't kill himself, but he surrendered himself to death. He permitted himself to be killed by sinners, by unjust men. Why? Out of love. So what really counts above all in Christ's sacrifice, according to Aquinas, is the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus, first and above all, of the Father, but also the love of Jesus for sinful human beings, even for you. So Aquinas uh, has, is rather clear in saying that Jesus thought about you. I mean, not just you generically. He thought about you specifically when he offered himself on the cross. When you begin to think about that, when you begin to reflect on that, it sort of changes the way you think about, uh, say, your relationship with Jesus and the redemption he has, he has won for you. He died for you, not generically, you in particular. The supreme value that the Father sees in Christ's sacrifice, according to St. Thomas, is not the suffering or the death of Jesus. In itself, suffering is not pleasing to God, and the Father did not directly will the suffering. What did the Father will for Jesus to do? He willed that Jesus would expose himself to the passion for our sake, out of love. What pleases the Father above all is that in his humanity, Jesus is willing to offer everything all the way to the very end, all the way to death, out of love for God. And that is what undoes the sin of our first parents, who as human beings failed to love God above all things. They loved their own good more, and they chose what they wanted, not what God wanted. So Aquinas' account is that Jesus, seeing all of the sins of the world and all of the consequences of sin that human beings will inherit, including all of your sins and all of the consequences that you deserve because of your sins, he willingly takes all of those on himself out of love for you. And as the perfectly innocent man goes to death on the cross. And that is the sacrifice of the cross. And by that sacrifice, Christ reorders man back to God. First of all, because he is a man. So a man is now rightly ordered back to God. And he also loves you and so joins himself to you and is reordering you back to God by his act of sacrifice. Okay, that's the account of the, uh, of the passion of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. But now we need to work, the, work our way over to the Eucharist. And the link for this is the Last Supper. Perhaps not surprising, uh, but Aquinas puts the Last Supper as a crucial moment there. So this brings us to my third and, and main point, really, which is how is the Mass a sacrifice? So we've talked about how the cross is a sacrifice. How is the Mass a, a sacrifice? And actually, the account that I'm going to give you here is based both on Aquinas, but also on a famous Dominican student of Aquinas named Thomas de Vio Cardinal Cajetan. He's known as Cardinal Cajetan. He was elected master of the Dominican order in 1508. He was an advocate of, of the thought of Thomas Aquinas, of Thomism, and also of modern methods of historical research. He was made a cardinal in 1517, and this is really interesting. He was sent 
1518 as the representative of the Pope to go to a public debate with Martin Luther, who at that point had not yet formally broken away from the Catholic Church, but it was kind of in process. You could see that there was trouble on the horizon. So Cajetan's assignment was this Dominican theologian. His assignment was to go and persuade Luther to stay in the Catholic Church. Okay, did it work? Alas, no, obviously he failed. Um, but that was a really important debate. You have a Thomas debating uh, the, you know, the first Lutheran. And then in 1531, okay, so this is after the break, uh, Martin Luther's break with Rome, and, and Luther is writing very, very terrible things about the, the mass and about the papacy. The Pope asked Cardinal Cajetan to prepare a kind of treatise in response to the Lutheran arguments against the Mass as a sacrifice. And this work that Cajetan uh, prepared was extremely important historically. It set up the fundamental categories that the Council of Trent would use 31 years later when it took up the question of the Mass. So the Council of Trent was the Council of the Catholic Church responding to the Protestant Reformation. And one of the key things that it explained was how the Mass is a sacrifice and it got a lot of its ideas from Cardinal Cajetan. So I've given you a, an excerpt of Cardinal Cajetan's argument about why the Mass is a sacrifice on the second page of your handout. And this actually, this is hard to find because it, it doesn't exist in an English translation. So uh, I spent some time and translated this from the Latin uh, for you. There actually, you know what, I think I'm wrong. There is, there is an English translation, but it's not, it's not the greatest translation. Anyway, uh, you have here, the, the fruit of some of my labor on, um, uh, on Cardinal Cadston. Okay, so I'm going I'm to get to this in just a second and explain how, um, how Aquinas and Cardinal Cadston give us the Mass as a sacrifice. But let's go back to speaking for a moment about the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, Cadston and Aquinas explain, Jesus began offering the sacrifice of the cross. So this is the key point. Think through the chronology of the Passion. You know, we celebrate it every year at the Triduum. It's just around the corner. So what happens? Holy Thursday, you have the Last Supper. Jesus gathers with his disciples. It's the night of the Passover. When the Passover lambs are sacrificed, according to that ritual sacrifice prescribed by the law of Moses, commemorating the exodus from Egypt. So I'm sure you all remember the, the, the sections from the book of Exodus about how the people are in slavery in Egypt and Moses is preparing to lead them out and they're told to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their, of their dwelling so that the angel of death will pass over them. So it's, a, it's the core event of the Exodus is connected to this Passover as God rescues them from slavery and from death. So from that point forward, the Jews uh, observe the Passover as a perpetual memorial. And it's the night on which they sacrifice an unblemished lamb. Now, Often, when we read the Bible, we just get that far, and we think, okay, yeah, they're sacrificing the lamb, and maybe we don't even think very much about what that involves. It involves slaughtering the lamb and collecting the blood in a bowl and then roasting the flesh of the lamb. The priest takes the bowl of blood to the altar at the temple and he sprinkles the blood on the altar. And then the people who offered the sacrifice, like your family, so each family is supposed to have a lamb, you take the roasted flesh and you eat it. So that's the Passover meal. It's not just Thanksgiving. It's not just a barbecue. It is a part of the ritual sacrifice. You need both parts, really, to have the full signification in first century Judaism. So at the Passover in Jerusalem, 
you had thousands and thousands of lambs slaughtered on the same day and their blood poured out in the same place. Imagine what that was like, like just logistically. And actually there's, there's a, a text, I think it's a first or second century AD text from um, a Jewish writer who describes how the temple was set up with like irrigation channels so that they could flush all of that blood out of the temple because we're talking a massive amount of, of blood of lambs. Okay, it's like, that's kind of shocking to us as modern people to think about that. But it's an important point. In the first century Jewish-Palestinian context, if you were going to belong to the covenant, you had to offer the Passover sacrifice. And if you were going to offer the Passover sacrifice and partake in the sacrifice, you had to eat the lamb. So, at the Last Supper, it's the Passover. It's the Passover meal, the commemoration of the sacrifice, of the, of the covenant. And what does Jesus do? He very self-consciously reconfigures the entire Old Testament system of sacrifices, the entire Old Testament covenant, the entire Old Testament priesthood around himself. By the way, this is like a kind of argument for Jesus' uh, claim to be God, because it's an absolutely outrageously audacious thing to do that no Jew would, would think of doing. It would be blasphemous to claim to do this if you weren't God. It seems that Jesus is holding himself out as God when he does this. So, knowing of his impending death, which will follow in a few hours, right? They go from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where Judas arrests him. Judas leaves the Last Supper in order to go get the soldiers who are going to arrest Jesus, and they're going to kill him the next day. So Jesus knows that that is what is happening. He takes unleavened bread and says, this is my body, which is given up or which is offered for you. He uses sacrificial language. He is saying that this is the new Passover lamb. It is the lamb of God. And then he takes the chalice, the cup, and he says, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which is offered for you. So he reconfigures a new covenant around himself, around his body and his blood, at the Passover meal. And he tells the disciples to eat it and to drink it, which if you were a first century Palestinian Jew, you would know meant that you were partaking in the sacrifice. That's what this meal was all about. But the sacrifice is not of a lamb. The sacrifice is of Jesus himself. So then, how is the Mass a sacrifice? The key is the Last Supper. Because at the Mass, we are repeating what Jesus told us to do. He says, do this in memory of me. So he wants us to repeat what he does, what he did at the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, he has initiated his offering, his sacrifice, and he gave it to his disciples first in a sacramental mode. The bread and the wine that were on the table at the beginning of that Passover meal do not suddenly appear in their exterior appearances to be flesh and blood. Now, we would say they really are changed into the body and blood of Christ by Christ's words at the Last Supper. But when the disciples ate that first Eucharist and drank from that chalice, they did so in a sacramental way. That is, 
they did not see a bloody sacrifice. They saw a sign of a bloody sacrifice, which itself was not bloody, the, the sign. The sacrament is not a bloody sacrament. Even though the sacrifice itself, when Jesus goes to the cross, there is plenty of blood. So at the Mass, then, and this is Cardinal Cajetan's argument, which uh, I don't think we have time to go through and, and read carefully his text, but if you look at it, you will, you will see that this is what it's getting at. At the Mass, the priest takes blood and wine, uh, sorry, bread and wine, and offers it to the Father using the words of Jesus. The priest at the Mass does not understand himself to be acting in his own name or in his own person, but rather in the person of Christ. In persona Christi is the classic way of describing what the priest does at the Mass. So as an ordained man, he is configured to Christ, the high priest, and he exercises that priesthood of Christ in a ministerial way as an instrument of Jesus. So you can see that from the Catholic perspective, what's happening in the Mass is not something separate from Christ. It's not just a human action. It's an action commanded by Christ and done by a priest who is himself configured to Christ and therefore acting in Christ's own person. And the priest's action, offering bread and wine, saying the words of Jesus over them, are reproducing the actions of Jesus at the Last Supper. In fact, it's kind of interesting that the Mass involves a long quotation from Jesus' own words. The priest does not get to the consecration at Mass and say, and then Jesus said uh, that this was his body. The priest says the words of Jesus in the first person. This is my body. And it's precisely at that point that we understand the consecration to take place. That is a miraculous change, which the church describes with the term transubstantiation, meaning the whole substance of bread is changed into the whole substance of the body of Christ and the whole substance of wine to the whole substance of the blood of Christ so that after the consecration, what is present on the altar is not bread and is not wine. It is the body and blood of Christ. It only has the external appearances or the accidents of bread and wine. What is really there, what it really is, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And this is the same power, the same change that Jesus wrought at the Last Supper by his divine power. So that gives us the key to the solution to the, to the difficulty, the Protestant objection. Is there a new sacrifice? No, there's no different sacrifice there because it is simply the same sacrifice that Jesus initiated at the Last Supper and fulfilled on the cross. It was Jesus himself who instituted the sacrifice in two modes. One of them was bloody, that was on the cross, but one of them was unbloody and sacramental, and that was at the Last Supper. And obviously, the Last Supper was pointing forward to the cross. Jesus knew that that's what he was doing, and that was the meaning of the meal. In the same way, when we go to Mass, it is simply pointing us to, or rather making present, again, that sacrifice of Christ, the body and blood of Christ that was offered on Calvary. Okay, so there is not a multiplication of sacrifices. There is not a new sacrifice. Christ is not being sacrificed again. His once and for all sacrifice is being made present in a sacramental mode, just like at the Last Supper. But in its substance, it is the same sacrifice. Okay, the last point. The fourth major point, and I'm just going to say a few words about this in the interest of time. It's about our spirituality of participating in the Mass. When we attend the Mass, we are participating sacramentally in the sacrifice of Christ. 
And this is very spiritually significant because we are able to enter into that sacrifice in a special way. Just as in order to partake in the Passover sacrifice, you needed to eat the lamb. So also to share fully in the sacrifice of Christ, you need to eat his body and drink his blood. And Jesus himself is very explicit about this. Think of what he says in John chapter 6. If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's a very strong statement. It's a radical claim. And the Catholic Church has always understood that to be very literally about the Eucharist. You need him to have life. You need his flesh and his blood to live. And so the spirituality of the Eucharist is precisely that when you come to Mass, you are receiving a share in his sacrifice and its fruits, which is his life. And likewise, you are able to enter into that sacrifice yourself. You can place your life on the altar where Christ placed his life. So this is a kind of challenge to you. It's a radical challenge, and you may not be up for it. Uh, in fact, it's. <laughs> I'm sure that there are some people here who would find it uh, maybe a little intimidating to think about. But this is what being a Christian is supposed to be about. Go to the chapel, go to the church, and place your entire life on the altar. Which means you give everything. And you hand it over to God as an oblation, as a sacrifice. Jesus did that actually. And when you do that, in union with his sacrifice, when you place your part, your life, your future, everything you have on that, sacrif on that sacrificial altar, you will not be disappointed by what God does with it. It may not look to you like what you had planned for yourself, God's plan for you. But he will take that offering and he will transform it with his supernatural life. And it will be wonderful. So I can tell you, I never imagined when I was a college student that I was going to be a Dominican priest. But you know what? Thanks be to God that he gave me that incredible gift. It's wonderful. And I wouldn't go back for anything in the world. That is the spirituality of the Eucharist. God comes to us and enters into our life and gives us a share in his own. So the Christian life is nothing other than being configured to Jesus. Jesus offered his life for us on the cross. The more we do, the more we do to configure ourselves to his sacrifice, the more we will be like him, and that means the more life we will have. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question, because I don't think we want to say, oh, well, if you're not uh, Catholic, you cannot be saved. Okay, that's a complicated and nuanced question. So uh, maybe I should um, back up a little bit, because in a certain sense, the Catholic Church would say, well, you cannot be saved apart from Christ. You cannot be saved apart from 
being a member of the body of Christ. The Catholic Church is the visible body of Christ, so that the Catholic Church subsists in the visible, the visible church that we see around us. Uh, so in a certain sense, anyone who's saved is a member of the church. Now, that's uh, not a very politically correct thing to say in a meeting with like an inter-denominational inter, uh, you know, uh, meeting. Um, but it, in fact, is sort of the logic of the, of the Catholic position, um, that there is, there is, in the end, only one church. Uh, and it's possible to be a member of that church in a less than fully visible way. Okay, so that's the important qualification, that there may be something that we are not seeing uh, that would allow us to say, yeah, you know, in the end, this person didn't know, perhaps, in full what it meant to be Catholic or what, like, why he or she was not Catholic. Um, and so, you know, God works, God works with that. Uh, but the in a sense, when you get to heaven, there's only one church, uh, and it's a triumphant, uh, glorious body of Christ, the communion of all, of all believers. Um, so, yeah. Uh, to speak specifically about the Eucharist and, and reception of the Eucharist, Aquinas thinks that baptism, which he would say is, is the gateway to salvation, you know, so the initiation of, of yourself into the Christian life. Now, I know that uh, there are some Protestant groups that don't that don't believe that either. Uh, so they they delay baptism or they say it's it's not necessary for salvation. That's a kind of Protestant claim about faith alone uh, and seeing you know not recognizing any sacramentality to baptism. Uh, but Catholicism certainly wouldn't agree with that. Um, anyway, Aquinas would say the baptism is always ordered towards the Eucharist. So the baptism is the beginning of the Christian life, and the culmination of it is the reception of the Eucharist. And so anyone who is baptized who really understands what the Eucharist really is would want it. So maybe another way to put that would be, you have a lot of Protestants who don't think that the Eucharist could be the body and blood of Christ. But if they thought it was the body and blood of Christ, would they not want it? I think probably they would want it. And that's an indication that there may be some... Uh, misconception there or some obstacle to their being able to access that that full uh, that full truth which the Catholic Church would, would proclaim as true um, and as, as vitally important uh, one other thing that I'll say um, there's many many more things that we could say and this is a very delicate and difficult uh, subject so I don't want to give it short shrift which I'm un unfortunately unavoidably uh, forced to do in this context but um, uh, there is a way of receiving the Eucharist without actually receiving the sacrament. Aquinas talks about it, a, a spiritual communion. So it's a, it's a communion of desire. So if you had a Protestant who was like, well, I don't think that the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation makes sense, and so I don't believe it, but I do desire communion with Christ, and I do desire like whatever communion I can have with him. Okay, so that's in a certain way a desire for the Eucharist with a kind of obstacle in the intellect that doesn't, that doesn't understand what, you know, how this Catholic claim could be true. And you could imagine somebody being in right relationship with God in that, in that position because of some of their own particular circumstances. They, they don't understand that or I've never, they've never heard it or maybe they've heard it, but they, they can't like quite uh, put it all together um, and so forth. There are also, Aquinas has a, a whole treatment of people who receive the Eucharist physically, like they go up to Holy Communion and they receive the host, but they don't believe it, that they're receiving the body and blood of Christ, or they're not rightly disposed to receive the body and blood of Christ. And they, Aquinas thinks, are doing what St. Paul talks about in the, in the first letter to the Corinthians, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. So that's actually a pretty bad thing to do. So it's not magical that you just receive this, you know, this wafer and therefore you're saved. It, it has to be faith animated by charity in which you receive it. 
Yeah. So if I were to explain to a person that transubstantiation happens because of reasoning, reasoning, how would I embed the concept of reasoning? Where is the background? Yeah. So this is this is the teaching about uh, the priesthood or holy orders. You know that Jesus configures these apostles to himself. So the classic understanding is that this happens at the Last Supper. And Jesus says to them, you know, it's the only people we know are at the Last Supper are the 12 apostles, or the 11 by the time uh, Judas leaves. And there's some, some ambiguity about whether he leaves before the, I mean, it seems that he probably leaves after, after the institution of the Eucharist. So Judas would have been instituted as, you know, ordained as a priest. Um, and uh, it's, the, it's at that moment that Jesus ordains them, as it were, uh, to do this. So obviously, if you are to do what he's doing, you, like, if you understand that to be transubstantiation, no human power can do that. So that's got to be a power that comes from Jesus himself. And so when he says do this, that, that's got to include in a way, the configuration to him that includes that power. And another, this would be completed then on Pentecost when he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them a, a share in his own authority. He says, those whose sins you forgive are forgiven them. Those whose sins you hold bound are, are held bound. So that's a share in Christ's own authority to forgive sins, which also cannot be a human authority. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is to not be in a state of mortal sin. So if we just want to talk about the bare minimum, like that's a very important uh, bare minimum. You need to be in a state of sanctifying grace. And that means if you're aware of any grave sin, go to confession before you go to Holy Communion. That's the classic teaching, and it still holds. So uh, that's important. Um, otherwise, what you're doing is you're kind of presuming that, well, it's all going to work out somehow. Um, there, there may be some cases where it's permitted uh, if you make an act of perfect contrition, but I don't recommend it as a standard practice. Uh, it's, it's better to go to confession if you're aware of any grave sin. Now, it's not obligatory when you go to Mass that you receive Holy Communion. So that's another thing to say. Um, you are obliged, when it's not a time of global pandemic, um, you are obliged to go to Mass every Sunday and on Holy Days of Obligation. But you're not obliged to receive Holy Communion when you go. So you're obliged to be there and you can, you can pray and you can worship, even if you're you haven't had a chance to go to confession, or even if you're in a state of mortal sin, or there's some, some other thing is going on with you where you, you are not prepared or disposed to receive the Eucharist. Um, now, of course, it's good to receive the Eucharist when you go to Mass. And if you're well disposed, if you, if you have uh, made a, a confession, if you're in the state of grace, then you should, I would encourage you, popes have often encouraged uh, the faithful, if you're in a state of grace, to receive when you, when you, go, to Holy, uh, when you go to the Mass. Um, but of course, when you receive, you want to be thinking about what you're doing. And I don't think it's helpful to like develop some kind of scruples about uh, like, am I being devout enough? Uh, the goal is to just try and direct your mind to God, pay attention to what is happening. And one way to do that is first of all, to ask God to help you be attentive. So that's a very, very simple prayer. Like you might think of it as you walk in, I mean, get in the habit of doing this. When you walk into the church, you dip your fingers in the holy water, right? You make the sign of the cross, and you can just say, God, help me to renew the grace of my baptism, right? That's, that's the sign of the holy water. And help me to pray well now while I'm in the church today. Because we need God's help even to be recollected. And then try to pay attention to the words. You know, if you just pay attention to the words, the priest says to you, the body of Christ. And you say, amen. That's, that's why we do that. 
I mean, there's a lot more that you could do, of course. But that's a kind of minimal thing to just try and be aware of what you're doing when you receive. I mean, the, the last thing that maybe I'd mention in this score is, um, well, I, I did a, a, a wedding mass in Vermont about 10 years ago for a friend of mine. And there was an African priest who was like um, covering the parish while I was there. So I did the, the wedding on Saturday and then Sunday, I just joined the parish mass. And this African priest got up there and he preached this fire and brimstone sermon that I would never have dared to, you know, I've never heard any American priest preach, uh, preach like that. Uh, so I'm not gonna preach like that to you, but I'm just gonna tell you what he said. Um, it's a way of kind of getting out of responsibility for, for it, right? Um, so uh, he said to the congregation, I've noticed that some of you receive Holy Communion and then you go back to your seats and you kneel down and you read the bulletin. And some of you even go out to your cars. Now, I don't know if you were taught what I was taught when I was a child, that when you receive Holy Communion, you are receiving the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you should go back to your place and you should kneel down and you should thank God that he came to you in the Eucharist. Okay, so I was sitting there going, oh, whoa, you know, like I couldn't believe that he was saying this. But, you know, actually, there's something true about that. So it is, I mean, when, when, we, when we come to appreciate the, I'm, I'm not trying to like give anybody a guilt trip, I, you know, but uh, I, I would not preach about it in that way. Uh, but it is true that it's an incredible mystery and we can become routine about it, so we should try not to do that. Yeah. I think this will be our last question. Yeah, so that's a, that's another good question. Um, there are, uh, so sometimes I go to Mass when I've already celebrated a Mass, and then I may not receive Holy Communion, not because I have a sin on my conscience, but just because normally you would only receive once a day. Canon law permits you to receive a second time for a legitimate reason, uh, but you're not permitted to receive more than twice, actually, in a day. Um, so if you, for some reason, go to three Masses in a day, you're only supposed to receive twice. So uh, part of that is to keep you from thinking about the Eucharist in a kind of magical way. And, you know, there are some people who, like, way overdo it. And will try to go to 20 Masses in a day and receive 20 times. Um, so that's, the Church is discouraging that kind of thing. So it's possible to be in the Mass when you're in a state of grace. And there, what you're trying to do is unite your prayers to the prayers of everyone around, and especially the prayer that the priest is making. But of course, the priest is making this prayer in persona Christi. So he's, he's speaking to the Father. And if you listen to the words of the Eucharistic prayer, that's, that's true. Uh, it's, the priest is not talking to you. He's talking to God on your behalf. So try to make those your words and try to place your heart, your life on the altar. There's no reason that you can't do that uh, just because you're not receiving the, the sacrament itself. Um, so you can still make what's called a spiritual communion, even if, like, suppose it's a global pandemic and the priest says, for reasons of hygiene, I'm not going to distribute the Eucharist, but you can come to Mass. Like, in theory, somebody could have done that during this time. I think the church has tried hard to make sure that people who come to Mass can receive, but it could happen that the priest just says, well, I'm sorry, you can't receive, you got to stand over there, but you can be at the Mass. And there, what you do is you, you try to receive in a spiritual way. So you make the same act of self-offering and of welcoming Christ into your heart, and that can have a real efficacy, especially when you're, you know, when you're physically present at the Mass, you're aided by the prayers of all the other people around you, the spirit of recollection, the, the words of the priest, and the fact that you're in the presence of the Eucharist. All of that is, is an important help. But if you don't have those, like suppose you were stuck someplace and you could not get to Mass, suppose there was a terrible ice storm like they had in Texas and you know you, you just cannot get out of your house for some reason, um, 
then maybe while you're at home, you just have to do the best you can to unite yourself spiritually to uh, the liturgy, even though you can't be there. And actually, this is something that, um, you know, I think could have been better handled in a certain way in the pandemic, that a lot of people got the impression like, oh, well, because you can't come to mass, you know, because of the pandemic, you're just dispensed. And so just like sleep in on Sunday and like, you know, watch a movie or something. Uh, but that's not what you're supposed to do on a Sunday. You, the, it's, it's one of the Ten Commandments. You're supposed to keep holy the Sabbath. So you should be praying on Sunday, even if you can't go to Mass. That's really important. It's a part of the virtue of religion. That's the first point that we started with. So we need that. God doesn't need it. We need it in order to be right, rightly related to him. So it's important for us to do that. Yeah. Sorry, I kind of got off track from your question. but Thank you very much. This has been great being with you.